Hello, welcome to episode number 271 of the Apolog Podcast. I am your host, Simon Head. Today's podcast, as per always, is brought to you by AIXDSP.com. Get affordable and useful plugins. The IC Intuition Compressor is a compressor that gives you a clear and intuitive visual display that shows exactly what is happening in your audio at all times. Click on the description, click on the link in the description below uh, for more information. Uh, as always, thank you so much, Amazon shoppers, for supporting the show. You too can do the same thing by going to appalog.ca slash Amazon or appalog.ca slash US Amazon. Do it the old fashioned way by going to appalog.ca and click on those banners located on the right side. Locate your country, whether you're from Canada, the United States, or the UK. Bookmark those links, and every time you shop on Amazon, use the links to shop and support the show, and it costs you no extra money. Thanks to everybody for supporting me on Patreon. You can do the same thing by going to patreon.com slash Pledge as much or as little as you want on a monthly basis to help with hosting and gas fees. And you can cancel at any time. Go buy a t-shirt. Uh, they're running out again. Appalog.ca slash shop. iTunes, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Give it five stars, please. Like the show on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash pod And follow me on Twitter at SimonHead666. This is a great episode. I've been trying to get this one together for couple of years now, Brett Hopkins, or also known as Limo, has been and was the one of the longest running technicians with the band No Effects. There's a lot of fat records interviews that come through here. Thank you mostly to Melanie Kay. But Fat Records is a label run by Fat Mike, who is the leader of the band No Effects. And we talk a lot about this guy, Fat Mike, this guy, Fat Mike, this this uh, legend, Fat Mike. Um, Limo has known this band for over 30 years and, and he has toured with them and, he, and they had this show, reality show, if you can go find it, a bit, bit of it's on YouTube still, it's called Backstage Passport. Limo is one of the main characters in that show, a uh, reality TV show about touring all over the world in some of the craziest places that don't normally do punk rock shows. It is real. There's some real stuff going on there. You have to, you have to watch it. Uh, Limo and I have known each other for over 25 years. I replaced him on an SNFU tour, and that's how I got my start with SNFU at the end of the... Uh, it was actually the Voted tour. I think he mentioned the Green and Leafy, but it was actually the end of the Voted tour. Well, the last leg of it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, a good friend of mine, Limo, also known as Brett Hopkins, on the Apple Podcast. We've known each other for a long time. Long time. Since mid nineties. Yeah. Mid nineties. Since uh since uh pre we knew each other, I think S when I went out with SNFU Green and Leafy, and then you came in right after me. That's right. Yeah, I, I yeah, and I got you had to go back out with no effects or something and Yeah, yeah. And I got called up to the big leagues, and that's what I did. Yeah, you got out of that band, got called up to the big league. <laughs> I did. I, you know, it's, I was actually supposed to join this other band, and uh, it turned out like I was at Warp Tour, and the guy came up to me and goes, I guess you're not playing in my band anymore. I go, yeah, that's not that's not happening. Sorry. And then you did SNFU, and then you went straight to Sums, right? 
Uh, no, I did a few other things. I I did um, I worked for like Voivod, uh, Rusty Trouble Charger. Then I went to some forty one. Think yeah. something like something like that. But you've been you were with No Effects for how long? Twenty four years. Twenty four years. Yeah. Jesus Christ, how does that feel? Well, it feels awesome. You know, it was, it was a great time. You know what I mean? And I, I think when when I finally decided to to leave the fold, you know, I've been thinking about it for a while. And then, you know, I, I got remarried and everything was, was good. And, and my wife was just like, babes, you've been meaning to leave. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, I'm out. Yeah. So, you know, so. Did the, when, so 24 years before, that was, and you, you, you got out of it, what, two years ago or a year and a, year and a bit ago? I guess I got out of it four years ago. Four years, now. okay. Yeah. So what was it like being in a like no, like working for No Effects like 24 years before that like because they were still a, like a pretty popular band they were a popular band back then um, did, when did you come into the thing when, when, start working for them I came into the band right after the release of uh, the Longest Line EP just before Punk and Drublick came out right. Punk and Drublick was already recorded it was in the can and I'd heard it before it came out I was I was with them before it came out long enough that I'm on the liner notes and the thank yous for <laughs> fucking Drumlick. So, so I was there long enough for that actually to make it all the artwork to be finalized before the release date. So. Yeah. And how, how did, how did you get the gig? So what happened was uh, I did the, uh, PD had opened up a club, PD and this guy named Shaky opened up a club here called the Nappy Dugout. And, uh, Kent, Kent and I, uh, Gorilla Grill had basically kind of died, and we were kind of messing around with some other stuff. Kent went out with Coffin Break, mm-hmm. and so he did Coffin Break. He went to Europe. He was he was mixing at the Crew Elephant, and No Effects had started coming through. He mixed No Effects. Well, No Effects wanted a sound guy, and uh, Eric Melvin wanted Craig Bouge because he were he heard No Means No, and he's always thought No Means No sounded great, so mm-hmm. he wanted. He wanted them. So he asked Craig Bouge. And he asked Craig Bouge when they were at the Cruel Elephant. And Craig Bouge had just come back from, you know, those early 90s European tours where they'd been out on the road for like two months, right? And he was like, fuck this. I'm not going to Europe for seven weeks with these guys in a van, right? Mm-hmm. And he was just like, you know what? I, I, thanks. I'd, like, I'd love to do it, but I don't want to do it. He goes, well, we need a sound man. And Kent was... He was he had trained Kent up to be his replacement. The crew loved. He goes, well, here you go, right here. Here's Kent. <laughs> so Kent went out with them, and he was with them for about a year, um, uh, and basically living at my place when he wasn't on tour. He'd, he'd come back to my place. He'd always have a place. He was going out. He was going out, and I, I because he was mo- going out so much, I picked up his gigs. Right. Mm-hmm. He. Um, uh randy was already working randy in the band he was doing other stuff we were going back and forth um randy steffes randy steffes yeah 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 yeah. and uh and then so what happened was uh, i did the snfu thing i think uh this was just before randy got given the green day game right Mm -hmm. i mixed green day they came through the nappy dog everything was good um I mixed Green Day, it sounded great, and the guys from SNFU were there, and they were just like, fuck, dude, that sounded great. Do, mm-hmm. you, know, you want to be a sound guy? You know, we, we need a sound guy to go on tour. And I was just like, okay. you know. But they wanted a roadie first, so I ended up going in the American leg. It was so funny. I did the American leg of the tour as a roadie until we got to Montreal, and then 
they got Monk to be a roadie and me to do sound, which was so funny because Monk was a better sound man than I was at the time, but whatever, right? <laughs> I didn't care. Monk laughed about it too. We laughed about it still to this day. Still talk to Monk. He's fantastic. But uh, so uh, I did SNFU. And then what happened was um, No Effects was going out on tour with uh, Fishbone. And they were going to be the second band on the bill. Now, Fishbone was, took out a guy by the name of uh, Ron Kimball, who works for Bad Religion. Oh, uh, Ron, yeah, Ron, yeah, 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 Ron yeah. Doss, Rock and Ronnie Doss. Well, Ronnie doesn't go out with gear. So he, Fishbone was on this tour. They had gear. We landed the opening spot. It was the first time No Effects ever had a bus. Like, one of the great things about No Effects is they were the trailblazer for a lot of the, the newer sort of punk rock bands that sort of came out, all the Epitaph bands, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, Offspring had got big, but nobody else. And, you know, Fat Mike, he was before the drugs really took over. He was, he was shrewd Mike, you know what I mean? He had all the, all the plans. So uh, they were able to go with Fishbone. Now, the deal with Fishbone was uh, there was a band opening up called Green Apple Quickstep from Seattle that was on a major they had the opening spot, and then there was no effects, and then there was Fishbone. Well, one of the stipulations was no effects. Said, well, we want a sound check every day. We don't care, right? Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. what happened was they said, okay, well, if you want a sound check every day, then what you're, you need a monitor guy because that's when we finish our thing, our monitor guy, he'll babysit you, but he's not going to do a sound check. You know what I mean? He's, yeah. he's got to go eat. So if you want to do a sound check every day, you have to have a monitor guy. And so they were just like, fuck, we need a monitor guy. But what we need is a guy who can do monitors and guitars and drums and everything. And Kent went, I have the guy. <laughs> and so they call, I got the call, right? So I, I came out, I, you know, I flew down to Florida, met with them. Actually, I met with them in San Francisco. We all flew to Florida together. Mm-hmm. But I met them up in San Francisco. And, uh, you know, first day, got out there. You know, said hi to the band, went to work, set up the drum kit. Eric Sandin came up and he's just like, oh, I got to set up my drums. I said, I already set them up. They're over there. He got behind them and he's just like, whoa, that's pretty close. That's pretty good. You're hired, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got on and, and I was guitar tech, bass tech, monitor guy. I'm the, I'm not a good guitar tech. You know what I mean? You're I'm okay. A, I'm, I'm a gl- <laughs> over-glorified string chain. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm, I'm better with drums. I'm, I'm a great backline guy. I'll troubleshoot your amp. I'll find your noises and stuff like that. But at that point, I was a drummer. Changing guitar strings, I had to. I took a crash course and still had to learn how to do it, right? Mm-hmm. It was not my favorite thing to do, but I did it. I did everything else, though. And so, yeah, and then I just started working with no effects, and we, uh, they loved my work ethic because I, I knew how to work. The last guy that was working for them was, like, useless. They had Timmy the Turtle, and he guy could, couldn't make a sandwich, right? Yeah. But he was a great guy. And then so – and he owed them so much money that after the first tour, they ended up hiring him back. And then I, I, I babysat Timmy for a good seven or eight years. <laughs> we finally uh, tricked bad religion into taking him out with us. Well, that's the whole thing about uh, no effects. They was all pretty much all Canadian, like you and Ken, Canadians. Um, there was some sort of like, well, they must just like Canadians because work ethic or the fact that we're just so damn personable. We're so damn personable. Uh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like we were personable and, uh, you know, me and Ken had each other's back. Mm-hmm. So that was good. Yeah, you and had a long history guys, too, right? Long yeah, history. We had long history together, yeah. so that was good. And also, you know, I was lucky. I could do all the stuff that they needed to be done. Yeah. And everything that they handed to me, I kept on doing it. I kept on doing it. I never complained. It wasn't until about five years of doing guitar tech that I, or a couple of years, something happened and where I ended up like choking some kid and body slamming him or something. Something happened during a show. 
And they were just like, well, that was out of line. I said, man, I'm, I'm just too stressed. I, I got too in. They go, well, you know, we need to get a guitar tech. Yeah. And so, uh, or we need, you know, so that's what happened. And then we ended up, then we ended up doing this rotating guitar tech thing for years. Um, Melvin kept on trying to bring on all these different friends of his and Hefe's. We went, we went through a guitar tech every tour. A couple of them lasted two tours. Somehow I, I found out that a lot of guitar techs are, are like, totally weirdos oh totally you know I mean? yeah there's they're not any of them guys that were like you know they were great in-store guys they could do great setups but they, they couldn't handle the road you know yeah. what i mean they were like super soft and, and the other thing we found was there was a lot of guys that were frustrated players so um, they were hoping they would get a chance to play get in there right yeah. and it's like no no you're you're a tech right yeah and also the other thing too is like no effects was you know if you're a guy that wants to sit there and work on five different guitars and like all sorts of, that's one thing, but you know, like Mike doesn't care. And, and Hefe, Hefe never breaks a string, yeah. right? In the 24 years that I worked with him, he broke one string, <laughs> right? And Melvin, Melvin is just a constant nightmare, but he's the nicest man in the world, right? So he was, yeah. he was great. Like Melvin, Melvin's the kind of guy that will put on a watch, right? Mm-hmm. And the watch will explode. You know what I mean? <laughs> he's, he's the nicest guy. Um, but he has this magnetic field around him that everything works great until Melvin puts it on and then the thing just <laughs> and then and intermittently, right? Like we've had stuff where it just doesn't work and then it works, right? And also the way he like would jump on his pedals and he's so heavy handed, right? It's yeah. just like yeah. So but yeah, but it was great. When we first started, we nobody was doing what we were doing, right? Like yeah. the first day we got the tour bus. Uh, the bus driver was freaking out. We we got this weird tour bus. The guy had to take the tour because he fell off his motorcycle and cracked up all his teeth, so he had to pay for it. And he'd just come off the Ice Cube, Ice Cube Predator tour. And we had him, and it was a 45-foot eagle with, uh, like, like old-school bus. And this guy's name was um, – what was it? Uh, he was a total redneck with no teeth. <laughs> like, horrible, horrible person, right? Yeah. And we came in there, and – a, a rider truck showed up with all the merch for the tour and fishbone was watching us and we ran around me and Kent and Jay Walker this time, Jay Walker, you yeah. know, always a ponytail, black glasses, day or night. Right. Just looked like a, we were just a bunch of criminals. Right. Yeah. And yeah. We took everything out of the, out of the van. We loaded the bus. We had, you know, we had 12 bunks with uh, four five, six, seven of us. So we filled the other bunks with merch. Everything was filled up with merch and the, you know, the, the fishbone couldn't believe we emptied all of the merch boxes into the be- into the bus, right? <laughs> That's what we did for years. You know, the big gear went underneath the bus and, and a bunch of merch and stuff. And, you know, we nobody had ever taken out a bus before. We thought it was pretty great. We, we wrote the book on a lot of things, European stuff. Like, you know, those first warp tours we got, we were the first band that, that had a merch tent. Yeah. You know, like we, they stuck everybody out in the middle of nowhere. And Jay was just like, okay, well, we'll go, let's go get a pop up and a, and, a, and a table. So we did that. And then the next day, there was three pop ups. And then the next day, there, then by the end of the week, everybody had pop ups. And, and also, people went through like these cheap budget tents that they tried. And they all blew away and sort of stuff like that. So <laughs> the Warp Tour was a total constant uh, evolution. Like, I remember the, the year that uh, Jay Walker took over the uh, merch rate from, from the tour. You know, we, we had a walkout in, in Seattle, in Washington. Nobody wanted to pay the merch fee. Fuck it, we're not doing it. It was a unified walk until a wildcat strike, and then we worked it out. And then remember Jay Walker just going, look, we can do this two ways. You can bring your people in and try to count us in, but all of us are going to rob you blind all day long, and you're not going to be able to keep up. 
Or what you can do is I'll give you a deal and this is how much you're going to get. And at the end of the day, I'll come and give it to you. And the first place was just like, no. And then the second place was Kevin Lyman came in there and was just like, listen, they will all not sell anything. You will get nothing or this. And then that's how, that's how Jay Walker's thing full came started full circle. It was around the same time. Yeah. The, the Warped Tour barbecue started. We started that. Carlos, actually, Carlos from Lagwagon started the Warped Tour barbecue. What, what years were that? What years? Threw his lunch back at the Roach Coach people and said, I won't eat this. And he went out and bought a barbecue. And that's how the Warped Tour barbecue started. What, what years was that? Was that early or late, late nineties, early two thousands? Late nineties. Yeah. It would have been like the second or third Warped Tour. It would have been the second or the third war for sure. The second one, I think, right? Right. Because I did the first one in Toronto with us in a few, and then I did it with Sum 41 for like, I did it 2001. He showed up with that van, that conversion van, and I was just like, Simon, this is magic, right? Because <laughs> yeah. they, they carried your back line, and you guys just rode in that. And that was a genius idea. We, it was crew of one, by the way. I mean, it... it it was genius to think when it came to doing the dollars and cents, but I was the only driver. I was touring around with like 18 year olds. So yeah. like no one would drive or they were they legal to drive uh, because you couldn't drive rental vans until you're 25. So I'm the only guy driving around and I'd like, that's, I think that's the, fr I hadn't seen you in so many years. And I think that's where I saw you again was with us in a few, or sorry, with um, no effects. And yeah. it, I was it heavy petting zoo or was it? Yeah. It was yeah. heavy petting zoo. I yeah. remember, and, and then we were like, we bonded up, just like, oh, I know this guy about Simon. And then we just like pulled you into the circle. Yeah, yeah, there. yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, it was great. And then and you, I think either you or Kent hooked up them, uh, the kids to meet Fat Mike and stuff. And they were so like enamored with 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 you guys because they were like kids, you know what I mean? Like, and, and they're meeting their their heroes, you know, for the first time. Exactly. So exactly. starstruck. And I think Green Day was on that tour as well. And I think Kent was mixing them on that tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they always overplayed. They just played and played and played, and people would say, hey, uh, stop playing, and they go, fuck you, and they just keep playing. Yeah, I know. There's a couple. I got, a, I got an altercation with, uh, with Billy Joe about that. And uh, Billy Joe Armstrong always hated me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Still kind of does. So. <laughs> well, and I remember. It's all, all due to a misunderstanding Yeah. and short man complex. Oh, okay, well. You know um, what I mean? Like, yeah, kind of. He was with his girlfriend. We, they were on tour. SNFU, Green Day, and Bad Religion were on tour. Now, I met Greg Hetson's wife previously. And I confused Greg Hetson's wife with Billy Joe's wife. And she goes, oh, and I go, oh, yeah, I met you before, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, I never met him before. Who, who did you bring backstage? Ooh. So she went after him for, cheat, uh, for being unfaithful, and it was my fault. So he held that against me for years. For a long time. I remember one time we all went out. No effect. The Green Day was big or whatever. We were all going out. And they were like, everybody can come out except for Limo. I don't want, I don't, he's not coming with us. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was a total bit of a prick. And then me and Randy had some friction, right? So I'm sure Randy said some shit or whatever. So Billy Joe kind of backed Randy for a bit. But then, then when, uh, when Warning came out and Green Day kind of, remember those years where Green Day fucking sucked? Pretty dry. Yeah. Pretty dry. Yeah. yeah. They were dry. Like, and that's when he first started doing, like, there's a couple of songs on Warning that are covers. It's like American Idiot, every song on that record is a cover, right? Like, it's yeah. like he just rewrote different songs. It's, it's, it's pretty blatant, but whatever, it works for him. They were all hits, yeah. so it worked, right? 
but so that that record came out. They they were doing nothing, and I remember I was we were all hanging out. It was we were in New York, I think, and walking around, and uh, Billy Joe was hanging out with us, and he had to call his wife, and he's just like, "Hey, Limo, can you do me a solid? I gotta go out and call my wife. I'll get hassled all the time. Will you, will you be my muscle out there?" And I was just like, you know, like from being a dick to me forever. And then then he needs me, and he's just like, "Hey, will you do that?" And I'm just like. Yeah, of course, Billy. Let's go outside. So we're outside. He's on the phone. People are trying to talk to him. I'm just like, yeah, no, no. Listen, he needs some space. Blah blah blah. Got his space. Everything was good. I thought we were all bros. No, we weren't. Yeah. Took, it took me a couple of years for him to kind of warm up. Even now, he he'll he'll RS me anytime. Uh, Mike won't. Dirt Dirt like yeah. me and Dirt. Dirt knows me through the Bouncing Souls. Yeah. Went to visit him. Different. Uh, Trey, but me and Trey will hang, smoke weed, super rap, right? Yeah. I don't know. And also, like, I would call Billy Joe and all that shit all the time, right? You know what I mean? Everybody else would just, like, kind of, like, like just have their nose right in his, his, his butthole, but not me. I'd just be like, no, that, that's, that's, you know, whatever. Just because I, yeah. I do that with everybody. Yeah. I mean, and that's the whole thing about punk rock is, like, if you can't handle it, you got you to be able, if you dish it out, you got to handle it. If you can't dish it out, you know, or if you can't handle it, don't dish it out, I think is, is the main uh lesson learned you know especially with touring with us and a few and touring with bands like no effects i'm sure they they are relentless when it comes to like if you get on their bad side or you kind of fuck with them a little bit they're gonna fuck with you back like 10 times harder that's what i do yeah yeah i think i learned that most from no effects was um just uh the sense the sense of humor was so um uh is it like inside, like super inside? Yeah, like inside humor. I remember like the whole big thing was you've never been a big deal about anything. I remember one time was uh, Eric Sandin was uh, asking me something. We came in. He goes, is all my stuff all set up? I'm just like, yeah, whatever, bro. And he's just like, did you just whatever me? And I went, matters. And he's just like, <laughs> I love you. You know what I mean? Like that was like the, that was their whole thing. Like, you know, matters was a big thing. Like, well, well what's about that? Matters. Matters. <laughs> yeah. matters. Does that matter? Whatever. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. It's like when I, I guitar tech for Sloan on like a couple of shows and I'd give Chris Murphy his bass. He goes, did you tune this? I'm like, yeah. I'm thinking like, I'm supposed to, right? I'm your guitar tech. And then you just take it from, you know what I mean? It's that sort of like very, very dry, but at the same time, you got to sort of navigate yourself through it to think, does he mean it? And sometimes with us in a few days, it would be like, they'd kind of mean it, but they'd kind of joke about it. So you're kind of like drawing, like trying to draw the line between like, am I in trouble or, <laughs> or, or am yeah. I in the joke? <laughs> yeah. Mike was, Mike was crucial for that. How's that? Mm. If something was wrong, he'd say something, but if not, you wouldn't get, yeah, that's cool. It'd be like, mm. yeah, just normal. Just normal. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, you kind of learned how to get along, but they you know, but they, they did that. I got treated so well by those guys. And it became like, we became such a, the original kind of super tight crew. Right. Yeah. Like one could only be lucky enough to get on a couple of tours, like or or work with a band until. And I think uh, there's a guy Roger who used to do sound for Canadian rock bands, Roger Pasuka, and he 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 would equate it to like we fell in love. We like as a band and, and a technician, you fall in love and then you fall out of love and then you stop working for them. And that's sort of like the the uh the analogy he uses you know because if you love these guys so much you're going to do anything you want to you you could possibly do to make them you know happy because that's your job you know yeah. you want you have to want to do that too yeah i can't can't have a really good thing um basically when i started working for no effects we kind of discussed he's just like you make yourself indispensable yeah right 
you do you you think ahead you do everything they don't have to do anything and that's what that's what I kind of did with no effects. It got to the point where they would like, oh, something, something on the bus. And then the next day I'd make it protocol, right? Mm-hmm. It was always, and also with no effects, everything was so loosey goosey, right? Like they ran it the way they wanted everybody on stage, all that sort of stuff. And this was never, you know, I was always running interference, but it was basically like, you know, I, I learned from the beginning, what you do is you just make yourself sort of like noticeable if you're not there, not noticeable that you're there, yeah, but you'd be very noticed if you weren't there. You do everything else so that they never have that you're never noticed. You're never seen. Right? Yeah. They never think about it. But all the little stupid things, you know what I mean? Like like all those little things, like like the ashtray and the cigarette and the and the lighter on somebody's rig that's just waiting for them every time, right? Mm-hmm. You know you know, with Mike it was a chopped line in a back room somewhere where I'd give him a flashlight and he'd run over and you know, before his encore, just like fully like like seventies rock and roll bullshit, right? Yeah, and and completely out of the view of Smelly, like Smelly would never could never know, right? Oh, There's yeah. sort of all these different levels, right? Yeah, because he was he was like reformed uh, uh, drug yeah, addict, yeah. yeah, and and almost had to get kicked out of the band because of drugs, which is hard. I mean, it's hard to think about like a band with Mike in it that did so much fucking drugs to say, well, okay, you've done enough now. Like, how much drugs would you have to do to get almost kicked out of no effects? Well, that's just it. No, don't forget, though, when when I started with the band, Mike just drank. Yeah. Mike didn't do anything. Uh, he didn't even smoke pot, right? He just drank, and he liked drinking. Drinking was good. And it was at the Summer Nationals. He jumped off the drum riser. He jumped. He didn't jump, and he hyperextended his knee. His knee went backwards, so he was fucked, right? Mm. So he was on a knee brace and we were on tour with a knee brace. And it was on that tour that he discovered that if he took these pills for the pain in his knee, if he had one or two drinks, he was as wasted as if he would have drank two bottles of Lambrusco. Well, this was a lights on moment for Mike pills and booze. Woo. So that marked the market change. And then there was, then he did that for a bunch of years and then cocaine came into the mix. And then when that came in, then Mike became, there was a while there were Mike and Melvin, uh, like, you know how sometimes people like to equate no effects with the Rolling Stones of punk rock yeah. because they've been around for so long? They weren't the Glimmer twins. Mike and Melvin at that point were the toxic twins. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it was just like, it was almost intervention-y at one point. There was there was one tour where it was just like, it was, it was we, well, we actually, we did have an intervention once in Europe, and it was, it was one thing, but... <laughs> Yeah, everybody had to. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough to do because you get used to a certain thing. Like you say, you, you have a certain flow and how you do the show, and some people walk away happy because all these things are done. And the, then when you're not there to do it or you haven't done it, then they become agitated. They're not happy about it. And I I've been in the same boat with you many many times as as a stage guy. You have to sort of figure out what they're doing, how they do it, what makes them happy. But I do I did draw draw the line on some. Like one one guy said, at this certain time you got to put gum in my mouth. I go, there's no fucking way I'm gonna put a piece of gum in your mouth, motherfucker. Like not a chance. I'm not doing that. <laughs> I draw the line. There you go. There you go. Well, that's important. <laughs> boundaries. They say boundaries are very important. Yeah, yeah, it's true. That's true. So so touring for so many years, did you you, you work for other bands or was that just like when you were at home? Like because I guess no effects tour a lot. Like. A lot. Yeah, well, the thing is, they tour a lot, and I did five solid years with Pennywise. Yeah, while I was with No Effects, I did. I came in on the end of was it a the second record about time, 
I was there for the recording and the release of the Black Record Full Circle. And then the next one. And then it just got to the uh, things got to a point where I kind of had to make a decision and I chose no effects over Pennywise. Yeah. Now, was Fletcher as a, much of a tyrant as the uh, f- as folklore d- dictates? He was like, he's kind of like a, like the, the benevolent king in some ways. You know what I mean? Like, I wouldn't use the term tyrant. You know what I mean? Because the thing is, Fletcher's big and mean and scary, but Fletcher gets away with so much stuff with just his charm. Yeah. Had he been born like 300 years before, he would be the king of Norway. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, he, without, without royal blood, he would have somehow assumed that position. You know, yeah. he was menacing and he was big and he was bad. But he was also very smart, and he knew how to use his bigness and then his niceness and, and back and forth. So it was very interesting. He was he was horrible when he was drunk. Like he he tortured Jason Thirst for sure. Yeah, I heard he used to beat up crew and stuff. He used to beat up people. Like just... yeah, he used to, you you always he tried to beat me up a, a couple of times. Yeah, in, in drunken stupors. Uh, you know, he tried to knee me in the head a few times and stuff. I I was always too quick for him. Right. <laughs> um. And, and also, also, I was I was pretty big too, so I was put in the position to wrangle him. The only person who truly wrangled him really well was Stuart Taggart, rest in peace. Mm. He was not afraid of the big man, and 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 baited him. Don't care, bring it. Yeah. You know, he was a sober guy, but he was still like there was a lot of rage still in in Stuart. A lot of he was he was he was a force to be reckoned with too. He was, and that's and he came into the fold, came to the forefront just as I was leaving. And it was, it was, you know, I was watching his his star rise with Pennywise, and I was just like, yeah, you guys are fine with this guy. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I'm out, right? But, yeah, Fletcher was amazing. But one of the things I find interesting about Pennywise is the guys used to kind of uh, a little bit bum on, on Fletcher because he is – he's hard to take. You know what I mean? Like, I can't imagine – like be, like you said before, like it's kind of like, you know, being working for a band is like falling in love. Well, being in a band is like being in a relationship. Yeah. It's like it's kind of like a marriage, right? Like you have to do things like in, in a normal situation you wouldn't, you know, kind of walk away. So this uh the, the dynamic in Pennywise was one thing. And sometimes they would get bummed at, at how much chaos Fletcher would bring. Yeah. But Fletcher's chaos was Pennywise, which created the band as big as they were. So rebelling against, it's kind of like rebelling against Mike. He didn't. Nobody rebelled against Mike because Mike had the songs. Mike had the ideas. Like, it's, this, is, this is the price of it, right? Like, you, you have to deal with it, right? But it was tough for the guys because eventually it became power struggles and Pennywise, right? Yeah. Because Fletcher is like, you know, he, like, he is in personality-wise as he is physically. You know what I mean? He's, he's a giant. He's a force of nature. He's mellowed out a lot now. But, yeah, he's... He's incredible, and also he's so charming. I've seen him get away with things like the the, the guy, like would destroy things in a hotel, right? Um, mm-hmm. The hotel night manager would be there. Um, Fletcher would be stapling his ear, stapling Adam Schwartz's ear, re- reach over and staple the night manager's ear. Like, like the <laughs> cops are coming, everything's crazy. But then the next morning, you come back and you look, and the night manager's there on the like sitting on a couch, drunk with Fletcher. They're <laughs> friends now. You know what I mean? Like. Like he got, he had a huge rap sheet in the in, from, with fighting cops in Hermosa because his his dad was the bad boy. He was the bad boy. Like he he was he was gnarly, but like 
he's so charming at times too. Like yeah. the, th- the things that he can get away with and like when you watch him, he does, it's magic sometimes. Yeah. It's like, oh, watch this. And the next thing you know, it's just like, did that, did that just happen? Yeah. And you're like, yes, it did. <laughs> and it's just like, did that gigantic man just deftly do that? And it's, it's amazing watching the things that he would do sometimes. It was, it was, it was incredible. Yeah. So, I'm, yeah. The only, the only real interaction, because I didn't really have much, because I was just frightened of him, because he's he's literally twice my size, <clears throat> and um, I think there was a like there was a it was like ten years ago when I was I filled in for Kent for with the Descendants doing that right. Montebello Rock Fest, and you know that hotel there's that sort of hangout area. Yeah, I keep seeing Fletcher, and I'm like, he's looking at me like, who the fuck is this kid? Like, because I just look like this little guy compared to him, and he looks at me, and goes, who are you with? I'm like, I'm I'm with the Descendants. He goes, oh cool much respect i'm like okay good he's not gonna <laughs> he's not gonna fuck yeah. with me yeah. Yeah. And this thing is what's great about fletcher is at any point you know he could yeah i know that's if, the... even if you're in the circle of trust yeah there's a good chance that you could get puked on he's also he's got his fist in a half of a watermelon and he's like mashing this watermelon because he's making a drink out of like half of a watermelon and he's like yes. using his fist to sort of mash down like all the pulp so he could pour all the booze in it. And he's making himself a drink out of a watermelon. And oh, uh, I remember Rubley telling stories of uh, basically Rubley filled up a, like a salad bowl full of uh, a <laughs> bottle of Kahlua and vodka and milk so that he could just walk up with a cup and drink black Russians for his medicine and just drinking and like still being able to like play completely wasted it's just like it yeah unbelievable his guitar like, always looks so small on him too like because he's just so big he's so big yeah 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 so yeah but before that like so I, like i did that thing with pennywise but the big thing with no effects was after a while it became slower busier slower busier so i always needed bands to work with mm-hmm. right and also the other thing that was great with no effects was they always had like a fat band or somebody coming out on tour and they wanted a sound guy so i always yeah. got to make a little bit extra money so I mixed a bunch of bands and made relationships with bands. So I did a lot of tours with, uh, I, I did a lot of stuff with Bad Religion, did a lot of stuff with Less Than Jake, did a lot of years with The Bouncing Souls. Less Than Jake was a, was a good, solid, fun time because I didn't really know them. I knew who they were. They were on the Warped Tour. They were a nice bunch of guys or whatever. It was all cool. And then I got, I kind of got the gig and I and I went out with them and, and I did a good bunch of solid years with them when it was a busier, slow year with with no effects. And I really enjoyed my time with Les and Jake. They're a, a good bunch of guys and the crowds were super cool because it was so different. Mm-hmm. There was such a young little crowd. I remember we played the Eagles ballroom in Milwaukee. Oh yeah. Right yeah, across yeah. The street from where Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment was. Yeah. Right? I, I've been there. Yeah. That place. Yeah, that we were talking about that when we, when we just saw each other this year. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so we we're in there and uh, I'm settling with the guy and the guy goes, Oh, it was pretty good last night. Uh, it was pretty good tonight. Looked pretty packed because it sold out, and the promoter was just like, "Oh, it sold out." He goes, "Whoa, it didn't seem like sold out." Slayer was sold out the other night, and it seemed like there was way more people. And I went, "Well, your average Slayer fan is about three times the size of your average Less Than Jake fan, right?" We all laughed about it. He goes, "That's actually true. There was lots of kids." And I went, "Yeah." You know. <laughs> was it upstairs or downstairs? We were, we were both. Oh, you know what? Actually, yeah, I think we were upstairs. That one one time we played there with no effects. And Testament was playing in the bar, and we were playing in the big room. And the singer from Testament was so bummed that they were playing the bar with all their stuff. And this punk rock band with guys in oversized shorts, (laughs) 
funny haircuts had sold out the other room and were getting all the love and no one cared about Tesla. And he was so salty and butthurt. And so was their crew. It was great. I love stuff like that. We were there. I was there with us in a few and we were playing the bar downstairs and Cannibal Corpse were playing the place upstairs. So the drummer from Cannibal Corpse came down. That's where we met Doug Goodman for the first time because he oh, was really? he was their tour manager on that. Um, he's amazing. Eh? Yeah, Doug yeah, he's fucking amazing. Doug Goodman's a legend. Yeah, yeah, he's great. But we go down, and the the drummer from Cannibal Corpse came down to meet us and a few, and he was like quasi starstruck. You could tell he's sort of like, oh my god, you that's you, you're that guy that did those songs, you know? Like it was very cool. It was very nice, and it's sort of like, yeah, one of those same. But it was the exact opposite because we're like, yeah, we belong down here. We're pretty good, you know. <laughs> you know. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I remember that was a, the interesting thing. Like S and those first three records are, are amazing, right? You know, uh, no one else wanted to play Swear You Catch on Fish better than a stick in the eye. And at that point, you know, the scene in punk rock, SNFU was one of the biggest bands. Yeah. And then punk kind of went through this, ooh, Nirvana came up. Before Nirvana, punk, a bunch of bands broke up. I think SNFU even broke up. And then some bands that stuck around kind of came out at the next level and no effects was one of those bands mm-hmm. you know and the offspring and the whole the whole the whole california sound exploded because bad religion and some other bands had discovered europe yeah and also uh i think a big thing that made punk rock happen and i don't think anybody has ever given him his the credit he deserves but dave pollock david pollock who mm-hmm. runs destiny tour booking um brought over so many, he was a big fan of RKL and stuff. And he brought over yeah. so many bands for so many years. He developed and created this touring network and scene that allowed bands, you know, well, pre-downloading, you know, bands were able to make money, you know, like yeah. you could be a band on Fat Records or Nitro or, or uh, you know, Theologian or any of the different small labels, right? And, you you know, a Good Riddance or whatever would put out a, a record and, you know, Lagwagon would sell, they'd sell 110,000 copies. You know, you were, if good rinse would go out and all of a sudden, there they go, they're selling 40,000 copies. And you're, you're working in a band for 40,000 records where you're making a couple of bucks on each record. It's all of a sudden, wow, we're making money. Yeah. You know, and, and consistently everybody was doing that. And they had a good, a good 10 year run like that. And then the internet changed everything. Yeah. And then all of those bands, as big as they were, they didn't get any smaller or less popular. But, um, 90% of the revenue stream disappeared. Yeah, the industry changed. Or at least yeah. 75% and it would and it was never going to come back. Yeah. No, the thing I would talk cuz I went across about 5 or 6 times with a band with my band and we were we were like in the early 2000s like 2003 2004 and the guy that put our record out would tell stories about going to see No Effects and buying everything on the merch like spending a week's wages on at the merch table because it was so important to him to have everything on the merch table. You yeah. Know? And he goes, those days don't really exist anymore. And now he, this guy owns a record label thinking like people would think like him. You know what I mean? Like, and they don't do that. And I think it, part of it, I think the economy kind of went bunk as well as downloading, as well as just the industry. People just got tired of that, you know, of just buying everything. Maybe they weren't, maybe they weren't uh, gratified just by you know, getting gratification from actually buying the stuff. Who knows? And also the other thing was also now you can buy stuff everywhere. Yeah. Before, you know, you could like when me and you were punk rockers, um, we would go to I was in Winnipeg, I would go to Pepper's Records or Records on Wheels, and I would find a dead Kennedy shirt. 
Mm-hmm. I'd be lucky to get though two that were on the wall, or I'd find something else. You go to Graphic Arts and you're making your stuff. You couldn't get stuff. You had to order it from the bank. Yeah. You ordered it from the label. There was no hot topic. Mm-mm. There was there was no internet. You couldn't just you couldn't get anything. Everything was organic too. You know what I mean? People came to shows. Shows were in halls. A big show before punk broke. Before Nirvana and punk broke. You know, a big show was 150 people. 250 people was a big show. There was some crazy places like. California had huge shows at the Palladium, a thousand people. That was unheard of. Nobody else had big shows like that. Mm-hmm. And a band could, like Pennywise never left California until about time. They were able to just tour California because there were so many cities and so many people. California's as big as Canada. Yeah, it's true. Right? And it's, it's got a scene. It's got a young place. There's lots of bars. There's dive bars. So, you know, a band could just tour that their one state, never have to leave, right? And you know, but then, and, and also, you know, there was no way to find stuff out. You had to go, you know, now I can go up on YouTube and I can watch the first uh, minor threat show at, at the 930 club or something, or, you know, I can, you know, that, that amazing documentary about HR that came out and the footage that's available that, you know, like I can see things like, I remember like when I discovered bad brains, they were mythical. I against I had just come out, but they were already in the, you know, uh, HR was already losing his mind. Yeah. You know, it wasn't the same anymore. We discovered bands after they'd broken up. And we had no, and then they came back together, right? And there was just all this, and the music we discovered was, you know, somebody lent us a record or we heard something coming out, Maximum Rock and Roll or Flipside. Like we did, we can't, you can go check out a, a video. Yeah. Those, that didn't exist, right? I remember when Frankenchrist came out, it was a big deal, right? Bedtime for Democracy. <laughs> you know, like that, that, that whole, con- like, discovering discovering this magic of punk rock where you had to you had to go into the woods you had to find it it was it wasn't served on a platter for you and like just like i would like some punk rock yeah 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 no 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 you went you got a funny haircut you kind of like stood awkwardly in the back of the room until like some other geeks or, or nerds who weren't fitting in with the would find you and whatever, or who knows how what your experience was. I was lucky. We have different, everybody had different experiences, but you kind of just threw yourself into it. Just like, okay, I'm, I'm there. Yeah. There and, was no rule book. Yeah. And the records, the record store was, yeah, there was a few rules, but the record store owner was that person that curated what was cool and told you, Hey, you got to get this, get this. And then when major chains took over and mom and pop shops kind of went by that, you know, they're still in major, you know, cities and things like that. Um, the, the, the major chains started to telling people and blurring the lines between, you know, and physically and putting you know, metal tags and punk rock tags or not even punk rock, but it'd be independent at the time. It doesn't seem like you know, even today it's different. Like I have two kids and, and they don't really, they don't classify themselves as like punkers or as metalers or as mods or rockers. There's, they like everything and they don't judge. And I don't know whether that's really, really cool or really, really like not cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess we, uh, we'll find out. Yeah. It's, true. yeah. it's, uh, it's an organic thing. We didn't realize things were what they were until later because we were in it. Yeah. 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 Like and watching it, the advent of dance music. You know, it didn't exist. And then it came and then it took over. And it changed music too, because who wanted to go see a band that might have one good song when I could just go, I just want to dance. Yeah. Like disco did that, but also the electro when electronica came up. You know, raves moved out of from being like big in the field and you know, black ops and everything, and it became more accessible. 
and then you just saw the changing of bands like you know um you know joy division into new order and stuff and you know gary clale's tackhead sound system all this and all these other early industrial bands that like the first ministry records yeah. before mine you know what i mean like they're very the like, dancing big that whole uh wax tracks from chicago is consolidated all these sounds right and then this skinny puppy you know yeah, like, yeah. all this stuff came up and and cool, and then also, and then electronica started, and then dance music started, and then rock was still there, and punk rock, but then punk rock still became rock because electronica became a whole other thing. Where it's just like, what you play in a band with guitars, and and the advent too, like hip hop felt the same way because hip hop, the you know, two turntables tables and a microphone, because you, you know, nobody in the ghettos got. Gear, yeah, right? and it was as rebellious as punk rock as well. You know, you think just, early and punk they were very similar. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like a, a Ryan from Shades of Culture likes to make was 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 always very vocal about making that connection between you know he, he got it, he had a great conversation with Mike about hip hop and say you know hip hop started as punk rock like, ah, hip rap crap like but like Mike Americans had a different sort of look on it depending on which coast they were from as well. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it's funny now because we bring it up because I also noticed there was, you know, even back then there was, there was an interesting like punk rock in, in, in Winnipeg and Vancouver, the punk rock that I knew was, uh, you know, it was against, it was against sexism. It was against racism. It was against, you know, it was, it was against meeting. It was all, we took everybody in. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And then he kind of went to the California and kind of got this drop and this different sort of jock punky sort of thing. Surfy, right? yeah, surf punk, surfy kind of thing. Yeah. And then also just just watching Americans and the way they kind of dealt with the the African American thing and just like you know we don't have it here and we didn't. It was it was always alien to me, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the Bad Brains, great great punk band, but they were like brothers. But it was just like how many other ones were it took a long time before you got too many. There was always a couple of guys here and there back in the early bands for sure. You know, Pat Smear, yeah. you know, he's in fear, right? All these other, like, you know, like uh, the, the dead Kennedys, was, you know, all that sort of stuff. Everything was very, you know, but the, the California punk scene. Was. Yeah. No, it's funny you'd say that. Cause I, I, I remember being like, actually like in Port Portland, at a club that had both sharp skins and, and uh, straight edge skins, like not the, the La Luna or Satyricon. Not Satyricon. It was. It was the yeah the other place. The other place. Oh, Luna. Yeah, they yeah. Had a couple of different names. Yeah, yeah. And it was just so fucking crazy. We actually we were there with Down by Law. The first tour I ever did was opening for Down by Law, and there was like a um like pretty much a line drawn down the middle as to what side of the room you needed to be on to be in the right. And the weird thing was is that there was almost like a very very similar look to both. You'd have to kind of look at their tattoos to see, okay, what side do you want? Are you on the nice, the yeah, crazy look side? The, look at the laces. You know, <laughs> yes, true. The laces. That's true. I forgot about that. But there was like definitely like an inherent fear, more of a like a, a picking aside, I guess, West Coast, and with even with Toronto. Toronto had a similar thing, which had both sides uh, of the the good and the bad of punk, you know, and. But West Coast had its own flavors, and I, I deter, I always classify Winnipeg as being in there. Like Winnipeg is sort of like all the way that way, all the way west has this sort of that same feeling. Because I, I played in a band. We were still CFL in the West, right? Yeah, right. yeah. Growing up, we were in the West and CFL, so <laughs> we we're in that league. I guess that's where we were. Well, I, I we like I toured. West, I so. toured with a band from Winnipeg. I played in a band from Winnipeg, and it was you could tell there was like a Ooh. definite culture different. Red Fisher. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You know, so joining that band, I was joining what I thought to be a punk rock band, 
but it was a complete, we had to like get to know each other and sort of, there was some trust. We had to develop some trust because I was the dude from Toronto, the big city guy, you know, and, and they weren't, they weren't, you know, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it took a bit of like half a tour to sort of get to know these people I played in a band with and sort of understand what type of, where that punk rock line was drawn, you know? Yeah, and, and punk rock was interesting growing up in Canada, right? Like if you lived in Toronto, you know, Teenage Head was the Canadian Ramones, right? Teenage yeah. Head. Like you watch the new music and it's just like featuring Teenage Head and an interview with Teenage Head, right? Yeah. yeah. Now, and, and like still to this day, a lot of people go, amazing band right yeah, yeah. i don't really know much about them but they were a big deal and then like the big canadian punk rock band back then of course you know doa yeah, worldwide yeah that's vancouver that's the west coast so who to toronto i mean the forgotten rebels but yeah. then you also had like a bunch of early bands right you know what i mean yeah. you guys had um a, a sudden impact and uh johnny bordenko's band Was that oh yeah, band? yeah 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 um, Johnny B. Still and, then, and then, then you had like an actual street gang band, and the fact that you had the you had the goofs, a bunch of fucking goofs. That's that, yeah, that was that was an amazing kind of. Um, nobody had that. You know what I mean? Like, like Steve Goof was was fucking. He was a real deal, right? Like, oh yeah. Like he was he was, and all of those motherfuckers were for real. I remember being a Winnipeg punk rocker and I went to Toronto looking for punk rock and. And uh, the girl that I was with traveling with, she discovered the goofs, and I ended up there, and I was just like, wow, <laughs> yeah. these, this is for real. In Kensington, so, right? Kensington they, Market. Dogs, and they ran Kensington Market. Yeah, and I was yeah. like, holy shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going to the food bank with them, you know what I mean? Like, we're going to go to the food bank. I'm just like, okay. <laughs> yeah. You know? There's that one guy that played guitar for a while, Godzilla. The guy was like six, seven, three hundred 300 pounds with a <laughs> 10 inch mohawk right oh it was just like hard what? yeah <laughs> you know and just just that whole and like and i remember when uh and we played I, I saw the poster i was trying to remember the name of the club that the first time uh gorilla gorilla played toronto we played the uh was the, it was Sibony? Apocalypse the apocalypse club, club. yeah 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 famous just in the, outside of kensington market yeah and it was pretty intense it was pretty crazy yeah, that's Le Elliot Lefko, I think, was involved with that. Um, wow. Yeah, I think he's actually down in L.A. now working with Golden Voice, I think, now. The name sounds familiar. Yeah, Elliot Lefko. He put on all the shows. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I kind of came up in the late 80s, so I missed a lot of that mid-80s stuff. So I kind of, like, didn't know because I lived out in the country. So I wouldn't go into the big city and meet all the big crazy people. And also there was, a, there's a, there was changes. There was big sleeping changes. Where, like, everybody was a punk rocker, then a, a change happened, and then... Then a bunch of them left. Yeah. A couple of, and a couple of like Johnny come lately stayed, and then they became the new big punk rocker, right? Like I remember, um, Appetite for Destruction was a big calling. The glam, glam killed a bunch of our punkers, right? Yeah. We lost a lot of punkers to this glam sort of metal thing and and rocker, greasy rocker stuff. And we had different times where like we would lose members of our scenes to different yeah. genres, right? Yeah. It's funny thing about that now because you know I just turned fifty and as a 20 something i'm not the same person i was but there are still people down there right now in toronto who are exactly like they were 35 40 years ago you know yes. still the same and i don't but i don't begrudge them I, I i actually i do respect that because it you know people if you hold steadfast to that belief you know it comes with its shortcomings too you know being sort of possibly being stunted at you know other things in life like yeah like inputting into society and all that good stuff. But um, 
like how do you how do you feel now that it's been 30 something years maybe 40 maybe it's got to be well since you started being a technician because that's sort of like where you become a professional at that point right when do you do you still hold some of those values or any of those values do you do you do you, do you use things in daily life that was who you were 35 years ago yeah I, I, well, I like to think so. I, I, you know, we all sort of, our priorities have changed. You know, um, I was way more of a diehard vegetarian in my youth that I, I've forsaken that, but I do guiltily hold on to that as well. That like, you know, meat is murder or whatever. But I think a lot of those same. <clears throat> that's and I think that's caused me difficulties in my professional life as well. Because I still kind of hold on to those ideals. And I think it's caused a lot of people in the industry some problems and friction. You know, people who hold on to just like, well, we're doing this for the scene. Like, mm. like whoa, just make money. Just like, that's it's not about that. Or how do you make your money? Like, you know, I, I'm, very, I'm very thoughtful. I remember my big problem was when I went to Europe with punk rock bands, right? Mm -hmm. Like, who goes to McDonald's? You know, and all these bands, just, McDonald's! And I'm just like... Are you are you gonna get spit on? Like none of these punkers go. I don't go to McDonald's. You guys go to like that sucks. And you know you watching that sort of stuff. And I'm just like and I always maintain that. You know what I mean? Like and and that's why I used to like the European scene so much because it was so much more um, a scene and it still had uh, the politics and the values. And American punk for a while didn't. You know, yeah. like there's this whole attitude. Like I see, I see punk rock as a political movement as well as a as a musical genre, right? It's a mm -hmm. it's about fighting all forms of oppression. It's all about equality. You know what I mean? All the stuff that like bands like you know conflict and crafts and good riddance and propaganda and all that sort of stuff. I like I'm the I'm the on the record cover of the early hardcore record cover. The one kid with the finger up in the air and his mm -hmm. eyes closed singing. Along. I still believe. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I'll, I'll I'll be the last believer. You know what I mean? I, I still believe in the scene. Like I still believe in doing what's what's truly right, not what's right or left. What's you know when mm -hmm. somebody falls in the pit, you pick them up, right? Yeah. And I still do that with like where I I put my dollar. You know what I mean? I try not to like if I want to order something, I'm not going to order it on Amazon. I'm, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go for for uh clicks below and find who's making it well i can order it straight from them you know what i mean yeah. so all those little things still come into my daily life like okay i'm gonna go to the i don't i don't go to walmart i don't yeah. i try I, I i go to my local ig when i can i go when my i get a coffee i go to starbucks mm -hmm. i go to you know i go to the bakery the daily roast with i want to I, I keep my money in the community i have that same sort of thing uh think globally act locally right yeah, yeah. but it's still at the same time always think globally and know that, you know, I'm part of something bigger. And I just find, I, I found an interesting thing the other day. I was, I was talking about it at the, at the barbershop. Um, Matt Skiba made a post and I love Matt Skiba. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he made this post about how one of the most significant things in history is happening right now. Right. And he's like, this is like the most, the most significant. Right. And I, and I, I, I believe that it is like this, Black Lives Matter is gonna. I think it's gonna trickle down and, and it'll help Red Lives Matter, and it'll help. Uh, you know, it'll it'll reawaken the idea. Like the big part of Black Lives Matter is it's, it's a it's a class war, right? And, and most African Americans are, are put in the in the lower classes, and, and it's exposing that. Yeah. So once we fix this, then we can start looking at the other problems because they're all systematic and they're all part of it, right? Yeah. 
But Matt Skiba was just like, this is the most important thing. And I just thought to myself, well, yeah, this is a big thing, but America, like a couple of months ago, Hong Kong is fighting against China. Yeah. Like a city is fighting against China. It's been the ever, right? months and months of it too. Yeah, yeah. And they're like not backing down and then doing it right and umbrellas and like, and like, no, no, no. And then, and then France and stuff is just like, I just find America to be so myopic in its own thing. Like I saw some comment about somebody was saying something about, Oh, you know, what's the one that why are they destroying property? I'm just like, well, the Boston Tea Party private property got destroyed, and that led to America. And then the, I saw this one guy goes, in the Boston Tea Party, only one padlock was destroyed. And I went, are you kidding? That's what somebody told you in your history class, and you yeah. actually really, as a, as, a, as a grown man, human being, looking at the way the world works, or a grown woman or a grown person, whatever, and go, one padlock was broken? Come on. Like, they so cling to their... They they won World War Two. They're the freest country. Everybody's jealous of them. Like they don't realize the rest of us kind of just sort of go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and you know what? It doesn't. Yeah. What, what race they're from? That you can tell. Yeah, and the unfortunate yeah. part of it is, um, I mean, Europe had a similar thing too with, with class and with classism and and things, but it was there was not like real lines drawn with color but what they did figure out is that we need to stop over policing things and start putting money into communities and that's why there's like a, a bomb bunker or a bunker from world war ii that has a skateboard ramp in it and a punk yeah. show and a guy yeah. who's a mentor who works for the city they pay a dollar a month for rent you know yeah. and well, there's always there's always youth places in, yeah and they figured Europe. out that there's a certain way to stop the circle and what America does is just over police and they put people back in jail and, and they, demar they marginalize people because that's where they need to be. That's what they think. They, that's, there yes. has to be yeah. a, a, a system. But because there's so much money that keeps getting pumped into the system in policing and beating people over the head that it's really hard to turn that ship around, you know, really well, hard. Put on police truck today. Yeah. It's so relevant. Yeah. When was that song written? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like everything Jello said is happening now, and the difference is it took it, it took basically the you know <clears throat> the Black Lives Matter movement to really bring it back into the yeah. to the forefront because it is a problem, and it's and you cannot deny that 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 system is is so such a mess down there with the numbers, but you know. Our, our beautiful country, as much as we like the, like, you know, Tim Hortons and, hey, we're all okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, no, no, man. We're, we got it, too. Oh, my God. We're, we've got it so bad as well yeah. because because we're still tied to that same. Yeah. Like you said, it's 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 a social thing. It's a class yeah. thing. But it's also what you said is they, they, they've made a, a, a color line in it. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. like it's, it's obvious. Like, watch uh, uh, Stacey Peralta's movie. Bloods and Crips, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that's a great description of like, you know, the of what happened in the vacuum of when the uh, the FBI destroyed the Black Panther movement, which was created to, for lunches for a lunch program, but but had enough. Mm -hmm. You know, like people can only take so much. Yeah, and this is evidence of it, and it's truth, right? Yeah. So they destroyed that movement, 
and then replaced it with, you know, crack cocaine and street gangs. And it's, and you can actually watch somebody explain it and you go, holy cow. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that happened. Yeah. My brother-in-law worked for the DEA in Toronto for many years and he's, he's almost retired, but he would tell me stories that if you shot somebody in the United States as a police officer, if you shot and killed somebody who you suspect to be a criminal, five days, one week, you're back on the street working. Yeah. In Canada, it's a 30-day waiting period before they put you back out on the street to be a pl- and there's an investigation. There's like so I mean the systematic the 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 the, the, the prof- racial profiling, it's all there. Problem is is that uh, uh, the difference is that a Canadian police officer knows that if I shoot and kill this person, I'm going to get looked at way more intensely than if I was in the states. And yeah. so that's states, it doesn't even it doesn't even in some places it doesn't even come up. That's the line. That's the line between humanity where, you know, you're going to shoot and kill this person because you suspect them of being evil or bad. Is it do you do it? And if you do it, you better live with what you're doing. In yeah. America, there's no real consequence. You can shoot and kill somebody and fill out a report and you're back on the street. No matter what harm it might have done you as a person to have to actually live with shooting and killing somebody because the right. more you do it, the easier it is. You know, we all see those, you know, the, you know, how serial yeah. killers become serial killers. They just start with small things and they become even worse. And yeah, that's, exactly. you know, some police officers down there are serial killers. The only difference is they're allowed to do it. Yeah. It's brutal. Sure. Sure. And it's, it's, yeah. And it, and it's, it's generational too. It's like, uh, it's, it's been built upon in ways that we can't imagine or any other, any other country in the world can't imagine it. Yeah. Right. Every, every country is different. Totally. Right? Totally. You know? You know, Europe. Europe is so much different. Yeah, yeah. But Canada is so much different. Well, yeah. And America is just so much different because you know you got this population and this whole. I think that obviously the political aspect of Black Lives Matter should be mentioned, and it's it's something you know we have to talk about. But it's just I just feel that we can all sit here and talk about it like all day long, right? And then like what's going to be done is happening right now. People are fucking rioting and they're beating shit up and they're blowing yeah, shit up laws are changing like you said cops are being pulled up on charges now yeah you know, this whole thing about defunding the police is coming to the forefront and the system think, works uh, you know you riot and you you protest and like, and shit changes with mental issues yeah something like the, the thing that happened in nova scotia right oh my god yeah. you know like you send two rcmp to check on some woman like no that that should have been a social worker and the, sure the cops should be there but they should be standing back to protect the social worker in case anything happens. They shouldn't be, they're not the ones that are doing like, and you know, addictions, like our whole big problem right now, like look at BC having the biggest month of uh, overdoses yeah. in two years during COVID, you know, our, um, our, uh, our, our policy of dealing with like Gabor Mate says it the most, it says it well, you know, everybody who's on drugs seriously has been seriously traumatized. So it shouldn't, it's, it's not a criminal thing. It, it needs to be like a, a medical thing, a health thing, yeah. right? Because these people need help. They don't, they don't need to be policed. They don't need, you don't, you don't need the police looking after them. No. You need the, you know, the police, their role is important and that role needs to be fulfilled. And, and we need, we need, we need the police and the fact of, of, of certain things when shit goes sideways. Right. But we can't, you're not supposed to send them. It's like, it's like using a hammer to uh, to fix your glasses. You, you don't, right? You 
you're using the wrong tool for the job. Right. And there's no way a hammer is going to fix your glasses in any way, shape, or form. A hammer is going to damage your glasses. You can't. Right. Yeah. Like you're better off just not having the hammer and trying to fix it with your with hope and a piece of tape. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So well, that's. I think that's a a, a, way, a good way of kind of looking at it. Yeah. Right? Well, I work for a city. I work at a theater that that runs a uh, run by the city. And one thing I do notice about city and policy is that it takes a long time for someone to build a little piece of policy, even to deal with a theater, let alone criminal acts and how things are dealt with. It takes a very, very long time, and it's so hard to, to, to get into place. But it's so easy to do if something tragic happens. And when yes. that gets put into place, you get this thing, and it's dug in. And it's like a, it's like a you know, you have to, like, to, if you want to change it, it's, it's taken so many hours just to change put that policy in place that nobody's going to want to really change it because too much time has been spent to get it there in the first place. Yeah. Does that make sense? And sometimes even getting it there was fortuitous or based on circumstance. Yeah. Like you said, it's a reactionary decision. Bam. Yeah. There's a change. Okay. So now we've reached this point. Well, don't fuck with it. Yeah. We can only work so much on it until there's another big change or whatever. Like, these things are kind of beyond our control. And all these policies are modules of policies. And so every little module of policy, if you need to get from point A to point B with one person, you got to move all these modules around that don't usually pertain to you as a person, whether you're dealing with mental illness or um, you're a criminal. You're, you're going to deal, they deal with these in a systematic way. They can't look at you as a person and go, who are you? Let's try to figure out who you are to determine, like a Montessori school, of criminal, you know what I mean? The, you yeah, know, yeah. You know, let's see what you're good at not doing, and then we'll we'll work on that. That's that's a completely backwards way of thinking with with governments because yeah. they like their little modules. They like how everything gets put into place like a slide rule or a slide uh, puzzle. And when it makes sense, then they just push it through. And there's probably twenty percent of the people like that's a horrible thing, but eighty percent, you know what I mean? Like it's like it's the the lesser of two evils for for how they do it. And that's just my observation, how, how they do it. And you could probably put that observation into maybe a few other things about how um, you know, legislation is passed and how policy is, 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 is enforced. Sure. Uh, let's talk a little bit. Let's, just, let's talk about Backstage Passport. Because like I said, that you were the star of that show, man. You have to, the first, especially the first no, 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 season. First no, 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 season. You're the, it was Ken. It was Ken. No, but you're, you're my star. You're my star. You're my favorite person because you said some of the funniest things. Uh, Ken was like obviously off his head and uh, he kind of changed his life. He turned his life around based on it, right? Yes. <laughs> but there's well, it's a, it's a couple of, it's hitting the wall a couple more times to change his life. But yeah, like it was a big like, you know, he, he knew what he was supposed to do during it, took his moment of stardom and then looked at it and goes, wow, everybody just thinks that I'm just a drunk. Like, <laughs> yeah. holy shit. You know, he, he really laid it out there for for no effects to have that character in the shows. You know, yeah. and then he opened himself up to like a lot of like self evaluation and self criticism after that. Like, wow. Yep. And he lost a shit ton of weight, and you know, looks you know, and he yeah, looked killing cool. it now. He's, he's, he's on top of the world now. It's amazing. And um, oh, yeah, backstage passport. Tell yeah. me about. So I'm mean, yeah touring touring all over to like these weird places. I love the premise because it's it's a situation like you've been in places like that in fucking Oregon. You know what I mean? Like most likely I have. Uh, mm-hmm. And some of the places like there was like hair life it, danger. There was danger to your lives. And I mean, 
I know it's all out there on the show, but just talk a little bit about it because it was just amazing thing to see, and it was like good to see. It was it was so fun to be part of that, like, and we we had so much fun. The the two guys that filmed it, they were night and day to each other. We had a one camera crew guy that went with the band, and one camera crew guy that went with the crew. Right, the guy who went with the band. He's 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 smarmy. He's he's the idea guy. He's got, he's done well for himself, and he's still doing well for himself, right? Mm-hmm. But he had a lot of dinners and got a lot of fun footage like that. The guy who went with the crew, he had to. He was like, he walked. Let, let's put it this way: he did the Wall of China backwards, right? <laughs> he walked. He he walked the Wall of China twice for everybody backwards. You know, the other guy was walking with the band, like. like so yeah, some of the best times, like Peru, there's a lot of stuff that happened in Peru that didn't didn't make uh, the video. Yeah. Uh, Peru is a very intense, crazy time. Um, you know, is- Israel was was pretty fun. Israel was pretty crazy. Uh, Moscow and Saint Petersburg, Russia, that first time mm-hmm. that was pretty crazy. You know, both those nights. South Africa. Both- South Africa was super crazy. I remember this one part in South Africa we did. The guys in this band, uh, Fizzygish, awesome dudes. Um, they took us around, and they took us to places that most people don't get to go to. And we went to this street market in South Africa. And, uh, and that was one of the days where we brought both cameramen with us, right? And uh, we, we, we fucked with one of the cameramen on that. So it was pretty good. But we went into this this market that white people don't usually go to, right? Mm-hmm. And we were walking with him, and it was cool. And, and we were getting some looks for sure. But at the same time, like, we're on shorts and tattoos and stuff. They're just like going, who the fuck are <laughs> these guys, right? And we're walking. We're walking through all this stuff. And we go by this thing, and, we and you know, the, um, the AIDS rate in South Africa, Johannesburg, is, is off the Richter, right? And the AIDS rate in Soweto is like one in three or something like that, one in two. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. And there's kids that are being born that died of AIDS. So we're walking through this market, and we turn the corner, we look, and they're making coffins <laughs> out of wood. Like just out of wood, there's a wood shop as if like, you walk around the corner, and there's, there's like, you know, you're down in Toronto where you're seeing where they're making fa- furniture, right? It's yeah. a furniture factory. The, what they're pumping out is coffins. Because one in three people are dying and need to be buried, right? So there's coffins, there's coffins. We turn the corner, we're just like, holy fuck, man, look, that's gnarly. Have you ever seen anything this gnarly? And just as Jay or Kent said that, I was walking ahead and I turned the next corner and I looked around the corner and I went, yeah, it's right over here. And they, everybody came around the corner and we, they were making children's coffins oh. baby coffins like so they're smashed in the face with coffins coffin 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 and then you turn the corner and it's coffins for babies because babies are dying and they uh. need to be buried and our heads are just, they're just <laughs> yeah. blown, right so we walk through this market it's super crazy right you know monkey paws are hanging faces a leopard it's 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 insane right like and and it's underneath of these bridges in this weird part of of Joburg and and like all these fences, it's it's kind of like that movie. What's it? Um, Plan Nine or whatever. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. Like like it's like it's Joburg. It's a bustling city, but it's fucking crazy. This is the the Antwerp video, right? Like uh, like uh, that video that they did. Um, 
uh, Becky <laughs> Boom Boom, right? Like it's it's straight out of there. You're seeing this shit, right? So we're walking around, and I'm sitting in this one, and there's this there's this toothless like African lady just sitting rocking back and forth, looking at us, just laughing maniacally, right? We're just like going, "This is surreal," and we're watching, we're walking around, and then I walk, we walk into this one store, and we're filming it. There's all this stuff, these powders, right? And there's this dude standing behind the counter, hard looking Nubian dude, right? Like just like like really regal chin, wearing like a like a dress skirt, cheeky sort of thing, right? He's got a cane. He's looking, and he's looking at all this. And I'm standing there, and he's just looking at us like he doesn't doesn't like us or whatever. There's a vibe. We're feeling a vibe, and I'm just like, hey, what's this stuff? And he just looks at me, and goes. You think he can just come in here and ask questions? Wow. Right? And we're just, there's a pregnant silence for a second, right? And at that moment, and this is before iPhones, right? This is yeah. the first time in South Africa. So let's remember that. His cell phone goes off in his pocket. And what do I hear? Boop, 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 boop. <laughs> it's fucking popcorn, right? And so everybody's standing there. This moment of silence of dread. And then you just see his face go like this. Oh. <laughs> like he's lost all his power. We all start laughing and we just walk away. Whatever he picks up the phone, you just hear him yelling into his phone or whatever. And it was just like it went from being so heavy to being comical. And we walked in there. It, was, it was pretty cool. And then as we're leaving, we're saying, "Hey, this is super cool. We've got this on film. Let's do a shot of us leaving, and you get the shot." And we had the camera guy who was always with the band take the shot. So we said, "Okay, take the shot." So we drove away. We drove around the corner, and then we kept driving. And then we oh turned the corner, God. and then we stopped, and then we, then we said, "Oh shit, we go get, get, should we go back and get him?" And we're like, "No, not yet. Let's just wait here. Let's just wait here." So we turned the corner, we waited. We we're able five minutes, and five minutes, he comes running up the alley, right? He's running. He's so scared, and we're just all laughing. And the bed, he gets in the bed. He goes, "Fucking total dicks. You guys are so fucking dicks. I was, I could die there." <laughs> And we were just laughing, just like, oh, my God. Oh, yeah. oh it was worth it, right? <laughs> yeah, that would take like, a dark turn. It was, it, was like, it was kind of like what the crew was like a lion's den. We yeah, were, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you got to be able to hang. And if you can't hang. Yeah. You know, that means no more crew shots on the rest of it. You know, it's just because your your cameraman's dead. <laughs> no, no. We, we the, good ca or the crew cameraman was in the van. Oh, he was with you. Oh. <laughs> And so we wanted to make sure that we got the film footage of him running around the corner scared out of his mind. <laughs> and he was, right? It just totally it was like uh, magic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, obviously that the, the episodic version of the, the first one. And then the second one was like an actual full length. Like it wasn't like in episodes, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Punk Rock uh, Backstage Passport was fun because the whole concept was Mike wanted to do a. Um, a movie, a video, an episodal thing that was real. Because so much of reality TV isn't real. No. You know what I mean? It's also staged. It's also hyped up. It's like none of it's none of it's real. Right? Whereas we wanted to actually have something that was real. Yeah. So all the filming was real. There was no we never like rehearsed things and did things. Yeah. You know, this this was all like full footage. A lot of stuff laid on the ground. And another interesting thing about um, backstage passport was uh, it never would have happened never would have been the way it was if Mike hadn't ran with it the way he did like it was amazing Mike played poker with uh, T 
TV executives mm. uh, about creative content in the show that was um, both Machiavellian and pure genius. You know what I mean? Like the way he went into negotiations and and basically settled the show was it was it was amazing. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you know, the networks wanted this and that, and it was being bought and all these talking heads. And, and Mike just kind of went in there and, and, and gave them a lesson in, in like, in, in being a huckster and then, and knowing what was right. Like yeah. there's, a, there's an amazing point where, you know, the, the, the TV show didn't want to do anything unless they had uh, this control or whatever. Right. So everybody had to sign these waivers and contracts and we all knew that. And Mike Cockley goes, no, I need you guys to sign this. Don't worry. I'm in control. Right. Mike had so they had all this paperwork, but Mike made sure that he retained the majority of everything, mm-hmm. right? So no matter all, all of us combined could not out place Mike. Mm-hmm. He structured it that way, right? So when he came down to have the big meeting and they had the meeting and they wanted all this stuff done and that was the thing we had all these contracts and he said all the contracts. He said, "Well, we're going to do it this way or we're just not going to do it." And Mike. You know, Mike played poker with them and was and fully played like and bluffed them all the way to the end. And he said, "Okay, well, listen, this is the this is the deal. You have all this stuff. I have fifty two percent of everything. And if you don't do it my way, fuck all you guys. I'm out. It's done. I don't care. It's paid for. I'll mm-hmm. put it out on my record label. I'll sell fifty thousand copies. I don't need it on TV. Yeah. Fuck you guys. And they had never what like their jaws dropped." You know, these people are in uh, their like thousand fifteen hundred dollar suits and used to dealing with people and playing hardball and reading Trump's thing. This is how business is done. And here Mike comes in with like green hair at the time or God knows whatever, like you know, <laughs> just being Mike and just outsmarts them all. Yeah. Out shysters them all. Like like, oh you think oh you you're a badass businessman, you're a shark, you're a shark. Well, you just got sharked yeah. by this this guy. And I was just like, when I was, I was so like, it was so awesome the way Mike made that come out the way it came out because it could have so easily been taken and turned into something else like yeah. roadies for God's sake yeah. or any, anything else that came out. Like, like, like even the Warp Tour movie, it's, it's cool, but it's not, it's not real the way it was. It's, it's got way more reality to it than any of the other stuff, but it's not like we, there's no edits and, backstage passport mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's two cameras that are there the whole time and that's what you get and that's all you get you know there was no time where we went okay let's do that load in again yeah <laughs> yeah yeah you know like oh let's let's re- let's let's get all these kids back in columbia and let's see if they'll do it again yeah. you know like that didn't happen right yeah but that columbia show where the show's on it's off it's on it's off it's on it's off it's, it's crazy and there's a riot out in the streets like you know, and the whole time the band's in the, in the hotel eating food. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> that's the whole thing. Of, the I mean, cameraman that we left in South Africa because me and Ryan are out there and Ryan's filming everything, right? <laughs> Ryan's filming things and moving out of the way of bottles, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's he's the also, thing. He's also a great guitar player. Yeah. Jam with oh, really? Well, <laughs> yeah, we did a sound check in, in Peru and, uh, like, you know, we needed somebody to play guitar. And Ryan's just like, I can play guitar. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing about, I mean, about punk rock and about no facts and just it's very, the things that are said and done at the shows anyways, all you need is to turn the camera on, really. I mean, like, I actually pitched an album to Aaron um, called 
slander where all it is is fat mike talking in between songs oh well you know what that was run with because we called it banter banter oh we were talking about this actually this in february yeah, I, I, I sat there and i said mike stuff I, I went through like hours of shows and just yeah. pulled out and, and the whole record is supposed to be just well, i should maybe even say this on the podcast yeah, yeah, yeah. it might still come out right but yeah. like it's like i pitched it to kent and I pitched it to Aaron in different times. When I had yeah. Aaron on the podcast like four years ago, I said, you got to do this. And, and actually, I forget what I was going to call it. And she goes, actually, we'd probably have to call it slander. <laughs> it's just everything Mike said was just like amazing and just stuff like you would necessarily think someone would normally say. And that oh was God. that's when his they, thing, right? Yeah. Oh, God. He loves to just, oh, uh, I remember one time like just alienated every band at the hurricane festival. You know what I mean? Like just, Oh God. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, we're backstage with them and they don't know cause they're not tuning into the other bands, but he's just like, just, just drunk out of his mind, just running his mouth. Was, oh yeah. All right. Well, I think when on warp tour, when he, I got to see no effects play every day and the things he'd say would be funny. Like uh, the things he'd say about the new album is like, uh, we got a new album. Um, Heavy Petting Zoo, it's way better than that Bad Religion record. <laughs> it's like, you're just way better than that Bad Religion record. And people are like, boo! Yeah. You know what I mean? But yeah, it, yeah. Oh it, my God. He loves to put up stuff like that. Yeah. He loves saying stuff like that. And That's he says fun. it knowing it's going to get back to them. And it's sort of like, come on, guys, I'm joking. You know what I mean? Like, you know, or maybe yeah. serious. I, I, I don't oh, know. Well, yeah. Like, and like he'll, he'll never deny, oh, I didn't say that, right? So, <laughs> oh, I said this. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. Yeah. He loves to push that. He loves to push that all of them. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, but, and the other thing too is like, <clears throat> you know, no, no effect show was ever the same. Like, um, <clears throat> he would try to he would write a new set list for every every city. There was a there was a basic outline of a, of a set list of what was going to be on the set. But he would look at the set list of the last couple of times that we played that city, and he would pull out different songs so that because he knew the same people were coming so that they wouldn't hear the same songs. Yeah. There were the songs that were going to be played because he wanted to play them as part of the tour, but there were so many songs and so many things that we would change all the time. And the other thing too, is any point within the set, he could just call an audible and shit would go off the, off the range. And then we're no longer following the set list, right? It's just like, God <laughs> knows what's going on. Right. <laughs> that happened. That happened all the time. They were, they were such a great band to work for. They were a great band to watch sound check. I watched the heavy petting zoo album being written during sound checks really? and it was just so amazing to think back and then watch that record come out and just watching how like musically the, the stuff that they could pull off just by like, Oh, we're going to do this. And they would all play together. And it was just like, wow. Like, yeah. I was always impressed with their, their musicianship, you know, Mike's songwriting and, and, and like the, the, the way it all came together, it, it was the sum of its parts were greater. You know what I mean? Like it, there was, there's something that happened when they were all, when it was all doing it. That yeah. is inexplicable. I guess that's part of the magic. Of yeah, Black. totally. It's all of them put together. I mean, they're all good musicians, but they're a great band, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Great, yeah, great band. And, you know, and, and just, you know, and, and, you know, it's a comedy show out there. Yeah. You never know what you're going to get. Mm -hmm. Right. And and so that was that was always a fun aspect of it too, right? Mm -hmm. The fun aspect of it was like <clears throat> we used to do a lot of stuff like, and I used to joke about it like walk softly and carry a big shtick. <laughs> you know, like, 
the whole thing with our backdrop, we would make the backdrop. Come oh, so up, sm- right? yeah, 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 yeah. That backdrop. And I remember I went to, went to this festival and I was just like, hey, here's our backdrop. And we were saying, and I'm stage manager and the guy, and this German guy goes, do you expect me to light this backdrop? Do you expect me to light this up? And I went, actually, now that you're going to be a dick, I want to fucking reveal and a ballyhoo on the backdrop as we come up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he was just like, what? And the stage manager started laughing. And you know what? That guy got right into it. And it was totally, yeah. we did it all. And we used to do the reveal. You know what I mean? Like we would have like, we would come out and the backdrop would drop in. Yeah, yeah. And this backdrop would drop in and it's like a, like a poster. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like. Awesome, and then we we just designed this thing. Ron Kimball, the 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 Kimbuki, we called it because we wanted a Kabuki, right? We wanted to do a Kabuki with the banner where we had a bigger banner. We have no banner, and then we would expose it, and then the banner would show up, and everybody would go crazy, right? <laughs> then we go with a bigger banner, and we say, "I've got a new banner," and then we will police the new banner. The banner would drop, and then a smaller banner would be there, right? Just like always, like stuff like that, like just like like just funny, stupid stuff, shtick. Yeah. The Rockham Ring show, I it's on YouTube and you can watch it. It's uh, it focuses in on that 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 backdrop and it's like what is it like eight feet wide, maybe six feet wide? It's like a fucking it's small, right? No, it's, like it's, it's 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 like three feet by a foot. It's like <laughs> no, it's, it's tiny. Yeah, yeah. It's tiny. And I, I had to I've made those backdrops. I had to chase those back people try to steal those backdrops oh, all I bet. the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah, it was, just, it was just so much fun. Yeah, and that was the other thing too. Is it was just like the shit we used to do and get away with was just so over the top. Like <laughs> other other professional bands would never have like allowed that sort of stuff to happen, or even wanted this sort of stuff to happen. Like, yeah, Mike Mike just loved the the chaos. The chaos. Well, just not only the chaos, just the inanity of it. Sometimes, like just like just, just fuck with things, right? Yeah. I mean he knew he knew the band was successful and he didn't he didn't like he liked the fact that it was I think there was some sort of like if you want to get sort of hot, heavy about it I think he knew the band was super successful and he didn't want to play up to it so maybe reversing cha- you know changing the the I don't know the the aspect of it to say well we're just a bunch of dudes and that's kind of what I got out of it still yeah. No, matter, no matter how many people watching it, I was always felt like they're playing the show because they think I'm I'm laughing and I'm laughing. Like I like this. I'm enjoying yeah. myself. You know, yeah, like a lot of people go to the show. They're just like, I, I half the show is just I want to hear what they're going to say. Yeah, like what's go, what's going to come out of Mike's mouth? Or what's going to come out of Hefe's mouth? Yeah, like everything was like listening in on the on the um on the in ears because Smelly was never in any of the in ears. Like the stuff that would go on in the background was just like um, it was incredible, right? He had a microphone that nobody could hear but the band. <laughs> and he had a switch on it. He was so happy with it turning on. Yeah, switch. yeah, yeah. I remember the first my the first time I ever got to play keyboards is a total great example of no effects. Um, they decided that we we're gonna we we're gonna open the show with Heart and Soul, and this is just like a day before or whatever. Just like, can you play Heart and Soul? Okay, we'll play Heart and Soul. Okay, and uh, we're gonna come out to it. As you're playing it, walk out, just play, we'll all play it together, and then we'll play it. It's great, okay? That's fine. So we're at Brixton Academy. First time I'm playing keyboards, right? Like, And how I, how I ended up playing keyboards was Kent was just like, uh, they wanted to do radio, 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 part of the set all the time. Mm-hmm. So we had Una from Morgan Heritage play it on a warp Tour. And, and the whole deal was just like, 
We'll, we'll, we'll bring you a keyboard. We'll have a guy set it up, everything. You just got to come play it, whatever. So I teched her, right? So mm-hmm. I watched her every time. I love reggae music. So I kind of learned how to play it, right, watching her. Mm-hmm. And then we had uh, the Lee Murphy, the mod from Snuff, come out and play it for a tour. And that was great. But we realized we couldn't just bring people out to play it. But Mike wanted to keep playing the song, mm-hmm. get more keyboards in it. Mike likes to write songs like that. So one day Kent's just like, we'll get Limo to play it. He can play it. He's been sitting. He watches. He'll play it. And they're like, what, can you play it? Goes as as a drummer, he's got good timing. It's, it's, it's a really simple riff. He'll play it now. Yeah, I can pull it right. So I learned to play it, and I did, and I was all playing it. And so it was all good. So everything was good. And then the first show, I kind of okay, we're gonna open up with Heart and Soul. Oh, How do we play it? Sound check. Okay, we play it. All right, that's great. So I get out there. We're playing Brixton Academy. Twenty five hundred kids. I'm Brixton Academy. Big deal for me, right? I'm a yeah. Clash fan. Whatever. I'm in England. This is a big deal. So the bands out there. So they're like, okay, you go out there, we're, and you play it. Like one finger wonder, right? And then they're slowly gonna walk out. They're gonna put on their guitars and then start playing. And then we play along, right? So I'm out there. I start playing. And then I'm looking out there. I'm just like, wow, bricks the academy. And they all start like lights come up. Everybody starts clapping. They're clapping along with me, right? And I'm playing. And I'm just like, this is huge. I'm shitting my pants. This is the greatest thing ever. I'm just like. But I've been playing this for a while. Where's the band? And I, I kind of look around. No band. I'm still playing. It's 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 uncomfortably long, right? Because I'm not going to the other part. The do, do, do. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's too I'm much. I'm looking at the band. And I'm looking, and they're nowhere. I can't. I'm just like, what the fuck? If I'm gonna fuck. And then I look over, and they're all standing by my monitor board. Eric Sandin is almost peeing his pants, right? They're just laughing their ass off. It's kind of like the equivalent of like when a rookie hockey player goes out in the opening skate. He gets out there, he runs out, he skates out, and he skates around the rink, and he looks, and there's nobody else skating with him. <laughs> yeah. By himself. He's just yeah, naked, yeah. his pants around. Like, oh, my God. And everybody's back there laughing, and they all come up. That was that was how I started playing, being the gatekeeper player of no effects. How, how many times did you do the uh... – Play the last song, let the people start leaving, and the then European yeah, the yeah. Uh, how many how many times did you do that? Because I only saw it like once in like in Buffalo. We did it for like fifteen years, <laughs> and then and then sometimes we stopped for a while because people didn't like it, and yeah. then when Mike got wasted again, then it was European encore, long encore. And the whole idea was like Mike just liked to see a bunch of people running back in the room, and and people had missed some of the show, and something it created a buzz for the next show, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The big thing of Mike's thing was like when when No Effects started getting big, and they started asking them to play bigger rooms. Mike said no. Mm-hmm. Mike said no, 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 fifteen hundred. They're like, well, you can draw twenty five hundred. He said, that's fine. We'll draw fifteen hundred, and then we're going to come back in in eight months and and. And drop fifteen hundred again, rather than play for three thousand this year and then come back next year and play for fifty yeah, thousand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So he was always very, very savvy. No one, no one took control of that. Like that's even why Kent was the manager, right? There was no manager. It was, it was, it was Kent and no effects. Yeah. You know, they ran. They got to write the. They got to write the playbook. You know, no other band gets to write the playbook like that. Yeah. You know, they yeah. took a page from their playbook when they fired their manager and brought in somebody for a little while. But, they some fans are just too big, and now it's now the it, now everything's different. It never happened again, or maybe it could. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, that's, it's, it's, it. that's for the next generation. That's for the next the next group to do it. We already did our stuff. Yeah, you know, I do worry because I I hear stories, but it's like, you know, someone's makes decisions in life to do stupid and crazy things. 
the things are going to happen. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you might get really good and people, you know, go out with a ball, ball of, far, of fury, but, but Mike's 50, what, three years old? 54? Yeah. Something like that? You gotta, we're going to watch it, man. You got <laughs> to watch it. 56 is the death. 56 is the one, right? Yeah. 56 is the year that most people, if they're going to have a heart attack and die, that's when it happens. That's it. So next year, fingers crossed, people, limo's going to be back. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no. Well, but listen, I, I need to get going. Yeah, dude. I, you know, I wanted to talk about Barber. Just talk real briefly about being a Barber because uh, we talked a little bit about it and you, you find it really rewarding. I, I know you would. You, you do. But just talk a little bit about being a Barber because people can come get their hair cut for you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of cool. I just kind of like needed to do something. My, my wife came up with the idea. She's just like, you make a great barber. Mm-hmm. I know a barber. I'll hook you up. And at first, he didn't want me coming t- covered in tattoos. And I was just like, no, no, this is, uh, I'm going to do this. And I just kind of s- walked into an old man. I, I, it's a time machine. Mm-hmm. It's like an old man barber shop in Seashell, British Columbia. Most of my clients, I stood behind a dead man's chair with the guy. It's two brothers that ran the barber shop for 40 years. And just a bunch of old guys, and I just came in and just started cutting hair. And now it's kind of what I do. Yeah. I, I sit there, I just talk shit all day. I, I play reggae music. I play, I play a pl- playlist of reggae music, and that's all. And people come in, and I do everything from tight, tight fades to, you know, old man scissor cuts and everything in between. And you're happy. Oh, I'm, I'm happy, yeah. you know? I make uh, you know I make my own rules. I listen to the music I like. If I don't like somebody, I give them a bad haircut. <laughs> that's what the old man told me. You don't like somebody, give them a bad haircut. You might not come back. <laughs> you know, and that's the other thing too. And the other thing is too is it's weird when I first came in. All these old guys are looking at me, and I got a tattoo on my neck, and I'm covered in tattoos, and I'm you know six foot four, two twenty, and they're just like, "Who's this dude?" Right? And then I'm all just like, "Hey, what's up, handsome?" Blah blah blah. blah. Yeah, now, yeah. now I'm I'm the barber. I'm the uh, sometimes my my wife jokes about it because I go for coffee. I'm like, I'm like Al Waxman, the mm. king of Kensington yeah, right now. Yeah. Like, hey, yeah, it's like, hey, yeah, yeah. and like, you used to work in rock music. None of these people know who no effects is. Yeah, of course. Not, yeah. Nobody that's coming into my barber, maybe one out of a hundred people. Some kid goes, you work for who? Yeah. You know what I mean? And they trip out and they're like, Hey, what's with the no effects? And they're like, is that you and Joey Ramone in the bathroom in that picture? I go, yeah, that's me and Joey Ramone in the bathroom. <laughs> in the picture, right? They're like, what the fuck? Yeah. Oops. Yeah. Uh, like, an autograph picture of Irish Mickey Ward. Yeah, I got drunk with his brother in Boston once, and I got a picture. Right? <laughs> you know, so it's it's kind of weird. I I get to have an alter ego again. Yeah, because I did have an alter ego the whole time. I was with no effects. I wasn't. I wasn't Brett. Yeah, I only I knew his limo uh, until like I saw you on Facebook. Like, who's this guy? So many people didn't know my name yeah. when I started working at the Town Pump in Vancouver. Everybody in America knew I was limo. Yeah, nobody knew I was Brett. And then within a week, everybody, I became limo at the jobs. Mm-hmm. So very few people knew my real name. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, it is. It's true. Because mine was Timmy. When I when I was doing big rock shows and stuff, he's like, who's that guy let let, 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 us, let you in? Oh, his name is Timmy. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know anybody else named, I don't know anybody named Timmy. So then I get, oh, I get I, it. I do. Timmy yeah. the Turtle. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was always, yeah, when it was like, hey, we're like big fans of the band. I'm like, well, come on in. <laughs> What's your name? I'm Timmy. Great. Come on in. You know what I mean? Like, it was come always, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, man, I really, this is, it's good. I'm glad we finally got to do this because I knew we've been trying to do it for, I've been trying to do it for a couple of years now. So, uh, 
Yeah, man. I hope to see you in the summer, maybe. Maybe yeah. obviously next year when we start making up those shows we missed out on. But um, good to talk to you, man. Okay, Simon. Thanks for having me. And that was a nice long episode. It's been a while since I've had an episode longer than 45 minutes. And that was twice as long. Because Lemo's twice the guy. He's not only got the name Lemo, but he's got the name Brett. So we had to go twice as long. I was considering breaking this into two parts. But, I mean, you know, that's what, that's what works for. You can put the earbuds in, listen to the podcast, <clears throat> go all the way through and pretend that you're working. So, that was it. 96 minutes getting on. It'll be probably 96 minutes by the time this thing is done. Uh, not a record. I've done one that's longer. I think I did one over two hours can't remember anyway if anybody can tell me that'd be great uh, slash contact okay. so anyway that was a yeah interesting uh, it was my birth birthday last week i celebrated my 50th birthday thank you for everybody for posting on facebook and sending me well wishes um, one more thing to be said we were talking a little bit about us and if you chai pig is actually in intensive care as we speak today it's monday the 15th Monday the 15th and uh, he's not doing so good so be well Chai everybody send their positive vibes over on his Facebook group uh, all things Chai Pig related and yeah anyways I mean don't die because COVID I, can't, I gotta go there I gotta go if Chai dies I'm going to the funeral that's the way she goes and if I have to drive there I'm gonna drive there okay buddies okay everybody okay buddies okay everybody have, have a have a great week I got a couple episodes lined up for y'all for the next couple of weeks and we're gonna have a good old fashioned podcasty time until next week stay safe be well that's the uh, I stole that okay have a good week bye